Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Kay Arsenault Rivera, author of the recently released epic fantasy, The Tiger's Daughter. Welcome to the show, Kay. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's dive right in. Tell us about yourself and The Tiger's Daughter. Okay. Well, I'll talk about Tiger first, because I think it's a bit more interesting. So Tiger is an epic fantasy novel, first and foremost, but it's an epic fantasy novel I wrote because I saw a lack in the epic fantasy novels I read when I was growing up. You know, I was huge into Wheel of Time. I was into Lord of the Rings, all of that. And uh, I didn't see enough queer women. So I wrote an epic fantasy that centers queer women in a queer relationship. On top of that, it's also in an East Asian setting, um, focusing on Japan, China, and Mongolia. Those are the closest analogs for the nations involved. The main plot revolves around two princesses from fantasy Japan and fantasy Mongolia who have to overcome their differences in order to come together and defeat this demon invasion that's occurring. Um, they've been fated to be together since birth, too, because of uh, two pine needles that fell on their heads. They were born only a month apart. Um, so that's the story in a nutshell. And uh, as for me, I play a lot of tabletop role-playing games. Um when I do not do that, sometimes I do retail, but for the most part, I play a lot of tabletop, and that's kind of where I approach my characters and my writing from. Everything is very character-based for me, and uh, Tiger actually started as a overly long character backstory um, for one of the protagonists. Um, it was a letter she was writing to an NPC, and... Yeah, that's how Tiger came about. I My hand slipped. I had about 80 pages of character backstory that my GM was definitely not going to be able to slog through. And I decided maybe I should make a novel out of it. <laughs> that's kind of amazingly awesome and explains part of my next question, which is, tell me about the structure of the novel. So, I mean, I'm coming at this. I have not read it yet, but I've heard little bits and pieces. And as you mentioned, there is an epistolary sort of interjections in it. And it's, I guess, told as kind of a remembrance or a history or a retelling of some sort. So tell me about the narrative structure and what it allowed you to do in terms of the overall story. So the reason I went with Epistolary was that it was a letter that was being written to an NPC um, within this campaign. But the reason that I stuck with Epistolary even after I'd, you know, finished the first draft of it and was going through rewrites, I did try a couple of versions that weren't Epistolary that were first person, but it didn't quite feel right to me. Um, the reason is very simple. It's that Shizuka, who is one of the other protagonists, she's the you in the second person. 
is kind of a terrible person. <laughs> and um, because she's kind of a terrible person and she gets her girlfriend into all sorts of messes, I thought it was very important for the audience to see her through Shafali's eyes because Shafali is so in love with her and adores her so much that I think that if we didn't have that filter of uh, Shafali's viewpoint, maybe we would just end up hating Shizuka as opposed to kind of sympathizing for her because she has been through quite a bit herself. Um, also, it gives us a much more intimate look at their relationship. The other thing that comes up is that Shafali herself is very, very quiet so uh, having the second person allows me to have her really talk and take the spotlight in a way that I wouldn't really have if I did it third person. And it wouldn't quite be the same first person either, because Shafali talks most when she's talking to Shizuka. And so the intimacy of the story was very important to me. Um, I think part of the reason that I was so open to doing it as a second person epistolary novel was my teenage obsession with gothics, which I kind of, uh, you know, I didn't put two and two together about that until maybe like two months ago that <laughs> I wrote in epistolary because of I because I read Dracula like 10 times as a child. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. I, well, I grew up reading an awful lot of gothic novels and most of those are epistolary as well. So I think that crept into the book without my realizing it. So tell us about your two protagonists and in the framework of the fact that you wanted to have representation of a queer relationship, which thank you, by the way. Of course. So tell me about their relationship. Tell me about each of them as the framework that you're building this story around. And then I'm also curious about their mothers. So if you could touch on that a little bit. Of course. All right. So um, we can actually start with their mothers because in a way, Shafali and Shizuka's story starts there. Um, Shafali's mother is, her name is Berkila Alshara, and she's our Genghis Khan analog. Um when Alshara was 15, she killed her two eldest brothers and seized control of her clan, and thereafter seized control of all of the clans of the Koran people, who are our Mongolian analog here, and broke through the wall of stone that separates the Koran from uh, Hakaro. Um, in her invasion, she uh, fucked up the Hakarans, something fierce, and uh, eventually... Um, married one of the lords there as a political marriage when she realized she didn't have enough people to keep the invasion going. Um, so Alshara took a vow of silence when she was very young, and she's also not very well liked in Hakaro for obvious reasons. Uh, the polar opposite of this is Minami Shizuru, who is Shizuka's mother. Shizuru is from one of the oldest families in existence in the empire. Uh, she comes from somebody who was a bodyguard for the first empire. The only thing is her family's kind of fallen on hard times. They're bamboo mat merchants now, <laughs> and they're very poor. So she took a job as a brothel guard. And when she hears that there's this tournament with a prize of 30,000 Rio, which is a whole lot of money. Of course, she volunteers for it. The only trouble is that the tournament sends them over the Wall of Flowers into this land that's populated by demons and evil gods, and uh, nobody's come back from it. The whole purpose is to find the 16 finest swords in the empire and uh, have them defeat the evil god that's taken over this area. Uh, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. Everybody except for Shizuru and Alshara dies, but 
Shizuru and Elshara spend eight days together beyond the wall, and that's how they become best friends. Uh, that's where their friendship is really forged. So by the time that they come back, nothing's really going to separate the two of them. Um, so when they have their kids one month apart, Shizuru and Alshara, that brings us to uh, Shafali and Shizuka. So Shafali is our narrator. She is, as I've mentioned, very quiet. Um, she spends most of her time with the Corrin out on the Silver Steps. She likes hunting. She likes animals. She can talk to her horse, as she discovers when she's very young. Um, she's just very chill as a human being. She's along for the ride, and all she really wants is to have a nice, good time with her family or with Shizuka. That's all she really cares about. Um, Shizuka, on the other hand, is our very, very, very spoiled, arrogant princess type. Uh, she is the daughter of Shizuru and Itsuki. She's the niece of the, empire, of the emperor. And uh, she is convinced from a young age that she is a god and that Shafali is also a god because they're supposed to be together with the two pine needles that fell on their foreheads. And their job is to kill the evil god that lives beyond the wall, the traitor. Um, she is absolutely convinced of this, and it doesn't help that she is very good at calligraphy and very good at music and very good at dueling, even from a very young age. Um one of the first things that happens to the girls is Shizuka gets a bright idea to spend an overnight in the Imperial hunting grounds and a tiger finds them. And when they're kids, they take down a tiger on their own. And that becomes one of the first major things that they do that suggests to them that, well, Hey, maybe Shizuka's onto something here. Um, so that's, that's my two protagonists and their moms. So tell me about their relationship then. Is this something that develops over the course of the book or is this something that's there from the get go? Oh, it's I mean, it's both of those things, because we start the book from the present time looking back. So we know already how Shizuka feels about Shafali, but it is something that's examined over the course of the book because it starts with them as children. And as they grow, um, their feelings also do. And eventually they do um, fulfill that relationship. Um, it's something they always kind of felt like they had to be together. Shizuka doesn't really have many friends except for Shafali. And Shafali has all of her family around her and has actually a pretty good social life for somebody who doesn't talk all that much, but keeps finding herself uh, drawn to Shizuka. And it's just as time goes on, they find themselves being there for each other more and more. Um, Shizuka admires how just solid and unshakable Shafali is. Shafali admires how wild and how confident Shizuka is. Um, the first book really is a love story in that way. It's about how they fall in love. It's about the consequences of that love as well. So you mentioned this is a first book. So how many do you plan on having in the series? And when does the next one come out? So there are three books in the series. The next one is The Phoenix Empress. And that's actually due out in July, July 2018. Ooh, wow. So soon. Yeah. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> um, I just handed in revisions on that a couple days ago, actually. So I'm pretty happy with it. That's awesome. So one of the things that I've heard about this is that it's pretty heavy on action sequences. And they're pretty uh, sort of heart-thumping action sequences. So how how did you go about writing action in an analog that is, you know, Japanese and Mongolian steps and 
sword wielding action. How do you go about getting that even remotely right? Uh, the answer to this is that I grew up on a steady diet of samurai movies and Chinese martial arts films. Um, <laughs> so it's like whenever I get stuck on a duel or something, I'll just like pull up a fight scene from something I like and think about what I think makes that fight scene rad. Uh, what makes that fight scene cool? Um, for me also, it's a matter of the two, uh, girls, their fighting styles. Shafali, for instance, is very into her bow. Um, she makes a bow later on in the book that's very, very strong and nobody else can draw it but her. Uh, Shizuka has the whole like single, single strike thing where, you know, she'll draw the sword, sever something and then stick it right back into the sheath. So it's just uh, thinking of scenes that I like, thinking of what makes them cool, and thinking how I can apply them that to the various fight scenes. Awesome. So tell me about the big bad in The Tiger's Daughter. Okay. Um, there's a couple big bads. I think the major one would be the Emperor, who is Shizuka's uncle. Uh, the Emperor, his name is Yoshimoto, is kind of in a tough position because uh, when he was younger, he was you know, this very war-obsessed young man. But his first outing was actually against Alshara, and he took an arrow that kind of ruined that career for him. So there's a lot of bitterness there. And it also doesn't help that his brother is way more well-liked than he is. Shizuka's father, Itsuki, is the imperial poet. And everyone loves him because he's just this soft cinnamon roll of a man. And, <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing about Yoshimoto is that he hasn't been able to produce an heir yet, whereas Shizuka exists. So he's in this position where his empire is being invaded and he can't seem to do anything about it. and He can't create an heir. All he can really do is be a terrible human being to his niece. Oh, the who, man pain. <laughs> yes, who represents all of his failures in a way. Um, he's the one that we deal with the most in the first book is her uncle. Gotcha. And the other big bad? The other big bad would be the traitor god himself, who we don't touch on all this much in this book. Um, but uh, certainly the big bad for the trilogy would be him. So teaser for the second novel, basically. Yes, teasers for the second novel. <laughs> <laughs> awesome sauce. So tell us where everybody can find you and where they can find the tiger's daughter. All right. So... Your best bet for finding me is on Twitter. It, my handle is Arsenal Rivera. That, that's A-R-S-E-N-A-U-L-T Rivera. Um, I'm on there all the time talking about goth shit, nerd shit, and my partner, but also writing sometimes. Um, I have a website. It's krsnorivera.com. Those are the two best places to find me. Uh, as for Tiger, Tiger was released October 3rd, so you can find it pretty much anywhere now um, at your local independent bookstore, of course. Or if you would prefer going to Barnes & Noble or Amazon, you can also do that, too. Phoenix Empress is releasing in July, and we already have the pre-orders up as well, so keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Kay. I really appreciate it. Of course, thank you for having me. Anytime. And thank you listeners for joining us on Signal Boost. Make sure you go buy The Tiger's Daughter.
Welcome to the Skippy Infinity Show. I'm Paul Weimer, and here, today on Signalus we have Stacy Berg. Say hello, Stacy. Hi, Paul, and hi to everybody listening. And you're here to talk about your your two novels, Dissension and Regeneration, Echo Hunter 367 novels. That's right. Um, this is my debut duology. They are a pair of post-apocalyptic novels. Is how people describe them, although honestly, when I was writing them, I didn't really think about it that way, although I suppose it's true. Um, but to me, they are um, character-driven science fiction set in the middle distant future. The story of my two novels is the story about a woman named Echo Hunter 367, who is a clone designed by the church to be a loyal and obedient soldier. She shouldn't be able to care about anything except her duty and what she's made to do. But as citizens begin to rebel against the church's authority, Echo realizes that she may be on the wrong side. And she has to determine whose side she's on. And more importantly, she has to learn the answer to a a very deadly secret that she has hidden about herself, which is her doubt about what she has been made to do. Um, Her mission then leads her to a woman named Leah, who is a leader of the rebellion, who has a secret of her own. And Echo needs to find out Leah's secret, which is the key to the city's survival, and ultimately will need to choose between the woman she loves and the purpose that she was made for. So you say these are character-driven, so... Is it safe to say you started with the character of Echo Hunter 367 in coming up with the books? I did start with the character. In fact, I just started with the vision of a scene, and the scene in the end turned out not to be in the books, but it was the starting point for the character. And what I envisioned was um, a woman, somewhat military-esque, who was protecting another woman in some kind of desert scene where they were under attack. And in my imagination of this scene, it only gradually turned out that the woman who was being protected was a prisoner. And that was the whole beginning of the story that I had. And from there, I decided that I had to build out a plot in which that scene would make some sense and characters in whom or between whom that relationship would make sense. And it was really the relationship that I was interested in exploring. Now, as I said, it ended up that that particular scene didn't come into the finished novel, and Dissension was the first novel. But as I worked my way through the setup and what that that scene could lead to, I began to envision a whole world and a whole set of characters that that scene inspired without ending up in the finished book. So the scene doesn't actually exist in the book, but the, the scene actually happen. Um, the scene actually does happen. It happens in the, the world's story before dissension starts. So in fact, Echo Hunter 367 herself would know about this scene and know that it happened, but it doesn't happen in the front story. The reason why I was asked is because I was thinking of the author Roger Zelazny. It, it turns out that for the Amber Chronicles, he had actually written 
short stories for each of the major characters that don't actually appear actually any of the novels. We don't know about them, but he did that to basically get a sense of a handle on each of those characters. And this is what's when you were mentioning the scene that helped inspire Echo and Echo's story. That's immediately where I jumped to is like, oh, it's kind of like that. Yeah, I guess it is kind of like that. And I know that a lot of people do discovery writing where they on purpose write write about their characters, either scenes or parts of their characters' lives that they don't intend to be in the front story. That wasn't my intention. I was just exploring this idea that I had, but I suppose in the end, you could say that it worked out like discovery writing. And so it, it gave me a good, it gave me a good handle on something very important about Echo that I decided to show differently in the final novel. But I think it served the purpose of letting me get to know her and what she was like. Nice. Okay, so tell me more about the world in which Echo lives and this this middle future apocalyptic world that you've uh, dropped her into. Yeah, she she lives in a world that is set. Um, there, there's not a precise chronology, but it although Earth is not named, I mean it to be our planet Earth. Um, sometime after there's been a catastrophe in which the population has crashed and the environment has become hostile and and where Echo lives, it is a desert-like environment. Technology has crashed along with the population, but it is, the story takes place, it's not an apocalypse story, so the, the story takes place several hundred years after this bad event, and the world is actually beginning to function and and recover and the the second book, Regeneration, um, is even more about the actual process of recovery of the world. So they know about what we would call modern times. They have history. They know who they are and where they came from. But they have not had the resources to be able to maintain our kind of high-tech society. Since they have knowledge, though, they are aiming to reclaim what we would call modern technology. And so it let me play with what we would do if we knew what we knew now. We didn't have all the same materials in manufacturing and so forth, but we were still pretty smart people. And we said, well, you know, we would like to get that back. So we would like to be able to make power. Um, we would like to be able to do something that you could kind of view as networking machines. And, and we would really like to preserve our world from the troubles around it. Now, the the mechanism and, and what I envisioned was that if your population really contracted, you might end up all in one kind of circumscribed city. There might be more than one on your planet, but you might or might not be able to figure that out depending on your communications and ability to travel. But you would probably, you know, as a society, you would probably retire to a big version of a fort perhaps something like a domed city. So I envisioned um, that they would come up with a way to enclose themselves with something that, you know, might look like a force field. That's not exactly what it is. And they would need a way to control that technology. And so rather than putting a machine at the center of it, um, I put a cloned individual called the saint whose mind was really the central processor uh, for the tech that they're using. And they don't really understand how it works, kind of like I don't really understand how my car works. 
um, but they are able to make it go. But as the story is beginning to unfold, Echo is having a personal crisis for reasons that the plot reveals. But at the same time, the saint who on whom they all depend for their lives and for the, the running of all their technology and everything they have, the saint is also beginning to become dysfunctional. And that is something that's supposed to be impossible. Um, and it drives much of the mechanism of the plot. Well, sh- well that, that does uh, invoke a number of uh, post-apocalyptic and after-the-apocalypse sort of stories and settings. But rather than being inspired by and start listing off names, what sort of inspirations did you take in designing a, a world after the apocalypse that's trying to put it back together? Well, one of the things that I thought quite a lot about was a book, a nonfiction book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Oh, yes, Tom Cahill, yes. Yes, exactly. And so that book, you know, I, I thought very hard about that book. And I envisioned that, you know, if we had an apocalypse, really the same thing would happen as he described in the Middle Ages in the barbarian invasions. People would try to preserve their knowledge. They would try to preserve their technology. They would figure out a way to do it. Um, and in this case, in fact, um, I said, you know what, that I'll use exactly that structure. So I made the structure of the city be a church type structure. It's not religious. They simply use the hierarchy and, and use the functions. And so there are priests, um, who are, trying to uncover the knowledge, write the books and uncover the books the same way as in Cahill's book. And ultimately, as they begin to put together the scraps of knowledge that that they've gathered, they are really able to, the, the my two books talk about the time when the civilization is about to make a big step forward. I am reminded of A Canticle for Leibowitz. Yes, you know, I didn't, I purposely didn't read it until after I finished these two books because I was, you know, roughly familiar with the theme and I was really afraid of what might happen if I read, read his books. And after I finished, I did read it. Um, and I think you can see similarities in the sense that if you think about what would happen to a civilization, you know, a modern civilization like ours that had an apocalypse, you might rebuild in the same kind of way. So, you know, how, how my church moves forward is quite different from his because his is still fundamentally religious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a it, very strong Catholic, uh, doctrines, not to mention the whole wandering Jew. Yeah. There's a very strong religious element in, in the novel. Right. So mine is that the, um, viewpoint is very not religious. But it was a good tool to use some of the same kind of language and social hierarchy, even even though the the point of it was not the people in the Echo Hunter three six seven books um, are not religious. There's there's no talk of any kind of higher powers, but they certainly know about social structure and who's on top and who's not on top and who gives the orders. So it's an entirely secular culture you've built? Yes, it's entirely secular. Interesting. Uh, world building is one of the things I'm interested in in novels and how writers put their world together, what aspects they choose to put in and how they design it. So 
I've seen I've seen all sorts of reactions to apocalypses having no religion, having religions based on the fall, having religions based on an absent God, a distant God, an angry God. And no one could say who's going to be right. So there's a whole wide spectrum of possibilities as long as you're nice and consistent with how, how society is going to come out and function. And so yours is, yours goes towards the sec- secularism as they're coming through the fire of uh, collapse. You know, I, I wouldn't even say that they go towards secularism as a response. They are just secular, you know, and, and the, the reason for it in my mind was that thinking to the backstory of the apocalypse that they face, which in fact, in the books, they refer to as the fall, you know, because that was part of my sort of subversion of the religious imagery. But as their apocalypse was happening, it was scientists who were trying to put together the best plan that they could to save what people were going to be left. And I figured out of out of the scientists would grow a secular hierarchy. So where can people find you and where people where can people find dissension and regeneration? Um, people can find me at www.stacyberg.com and it's S-T-A-C-E-Y Berg. And they can find Dissension and Regeneration at Amazon or Barnes and Noble um, or all those other good places. And of course, there's links on my website. Um, the books were published by um, Harper Voyager Impulse. They can find them on the Harper Voyager website. Uh, and I hope they're inspired to do so. Thank you so very much for coming on the, on the podcast this evening to talk about your books. Well, thank you for having me, Paul. And with that, listeners and scene. listening to the show if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us at skiffy at gmail.com on twitter at skiffy on facebook at the skiffy and show and on patreon at patreon.com slash our intro and outro music comes from the launch by chronux you can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org